Are the narratives and history we find in scripture just about reporting facts, or is there something else going on? This is the Bible Reset Podcast, brought to you by the Institute for Bible Reading. Welcome to the show. I'm Alex Goodwin, here with Paul Caminiti and Glenn Powell. After last week's brief hiatus from the series, we're returning to our running discussion on the various kinds of literature in the Bible. We've talked about apocalyptic and wisdom literature, and today we're going to dive into how the Bible records history. This will be good, guys. And it is interesting uh, that history, this this category of literature, is what occurs most in, in the Bible. And you know, as you get into this, the very nature of these stories. Uh, it becomes evident that these are not made up stories because it shows how God is committed to working through real times and places and, and people. And it's in this, you know, historical mix that we see God revealing himself and revealing his character and revealing his attributes. This is where revelation happens. And I oftentimes wonder about, you know, people who who claim to be deists, you know, they they think that some supreme being maybe created everything and then, you know, just left us to our own devices. I, I don't know that you could keep that and maintain that position with integrity um, if you've really read these stories. <laughs> Um, because they just just ring true. And and so, you know, what we're going to see, I think, in this study of the genre of history is that the Bible isn't very interested in, you know, esoteric ideas and, you know, detached theological concepts. It's not, you know, like the writings of Confucius and philosophical abstraction. Um, These scriptures are relentlessly focused on what's happening in the real world, and especially for the people that, you know, God has chosen uh, for restoring what's gone wrong in the world, his partners. And so, you know, we'll see that these stories uh, are chaotic, that there's crisis around every corner. And, and God is, is right in the thick of it, participating in the big story, of course, which is our story. I think another thing to establish, you know, right off the bat, when we think of the Bible as history, that this history writing um, in the Bible is always a storytelling of some sort. It's not just history for history's sake. Um, It's a story of what really happened. Yeah, that's good, Paul. And I think um, the key thing here that we want to focus on today is, you know, beyond its rootedness in history is that this historical storytelling is definitely a craft. There is an art to it. So the history writing in the Bible has clear literary value and uses various literary techniques. Paying close attention to how the Bible tells history, including the unique details of the story, is where we will usually find clues to its purpose. So Bible readers aren't usually taught this kind of thing. Um, I think the, it's a neglected, just as it was so much of the other kinds of literature we've been talking about, it's not something that we're often taught in church, um, how to read the various kinds of literature in the Bible. But if we start paying closer attention to the literary features of the Bible's history, we'll start noticing the small things. And that's how our depth of knowledge and appreciation for it will grow. 
So the small things matter in the Bible's history literature, but so too do the big things. Our second major point, I think, is that the history is never just a recitation of the facts. Writing history requires having a big point of view, a perspective on what's happened. Historical writing, by its very nature, is an interpretation of history. It seeks to tell us what matters and why it matters. So this is true of all history, but it's especially true of history written in the ancient world. Various ancient cultures and empires most definitely wanted to tell their story from their point of view. So the Bible's history fits into this pattern, too. When the Bible gives us a story about what happened, it has a reason or maybe several reasons for telling it in the first place and then telling it in a particular way in order to highlight some crucial point. Yeah, I think those are two important points, Glenn, and we'll we'll take a closer look at both of those, I think, in a minute, including an actual example from the Bible. But first, there is one other big topic that I think we need to cover, even though it's not really our main point today, which is just to quickly step back historically, um, not not quite as historical as the Bible, but back into kind of the 17th, 18th century mm. into the uh, into the rise of the European Enlightenment in this in this modern period which i think was important because it led to this new historical kind of scientific examination of the bible which hadn't really been done very much before um you know there were these enlightenment critics that claimed that all other earlier commentators on the bible were from inside the church and therefore they were biased they were prejudiced um towards kind of what they were investigating so their their goal and the goal of modern historical criticism was to explore the Bible sort of more scientifically without this bias of faith. And it claimed to use the regular tools and approaches of historical study that kind of put the Bible's telling of history under a microscope and, and evaluate it that way. Yeah, I, I think, Alex, that um, for the sake of accuracy, we should point out that this initiative that arose was was definitely motivated by a spirit of antagonism against Christianity. Uh, this this was not a neutral examination. The people that were leading this initiative uh, began from their own personal assumption that God was not actively working in the world, that the Bible was primarily, you know, its history was folklore. And so it's not surprising that when the historical critics wrote about this, um, they were they were negative uh, around the authenticity of the Bible. And you see an example of that um, even in some later history with Thomas Jefferson's, you know, the life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth. Jefferson, who was a, a self-proclaimed deist, literally used a razor cut out portions of the new testament that didn't fit his worldview wow. preconceptions just little things you know like miracles and uh in the resurrection yeah not just you know extra to the story yeah, for sure. yeah minor think, details yeah. yeah exactly well and you and we can imagine of course that this provoked a really harsh reaction from the orthodox christian camp which which led sadly to kind of an overreaction they reacted but then mm. they they overreacted yeah. and it, it led them to disparage you know any kind of work of you know historical criticism of the bible and so there's been kind of bad blood in in these two poor sides and it's it's regrettable 
because you know we we have learned as we've studied the writings of the the textual critics that there is some good stuff there and there's some important things for us to learn even though they were coming from an antagonistic source and and fortunately you know in in the modern academic world that we live in there are scholars like N.T. Wright who um, have kind of reintroduced us to the gift of historical study for the church and you know how it can be done well um, and it was interesting. I was, um, you know, I had an invitation earlier this year to uh, to minister in Europe, and you still see in the evangelical church that fear of anything that smacks mm. of, of textual criticism, mm. and in many right. cases, a real you know aversion to the academy as a whole. Right. So, on a related note, kind of on your your last point there, Paul, I think okay, we can talk about the historical critics and how that work is done either well or poorly. But this kind of unfortunate history of conflict led many Christians on the other side to think first and only about defending the complete accuracy of the Bible's history, you know, and it's all of its all of its stories, but all of the details of the story. You can see this impulse at work in the fundamentalism of the early 20th century. So because miracles were being attacked as being impossible, seemed like defending miracles was the main thing to do, right? Well, this is fine, um, but for many people reading the Bible's history, it only became an exercise in affirming our belief in the supernatural. So there was this kind of obsession with fighting to protect the historical accuracy of every detail of every story. So we started seeing a lot of books with titles like The Battle for the Bible. Yeah, I think that this is what can happen when Christians feel like the Bible's being attacked in one way or another, kind of like you guys said. And we get Christians just get drawn into playing the same game as the critics do, kind of playing mm, the same, yeah. the same field as the critics invite us to play on, I guess. Um, where everything is just about defense or defending what's what's being questioned. And I think in that process, our own reading of the text can get distorted and we end up missing what's really there and what the Bible is actually trying to do. And I think the point that we're trying to get across here is that we shouldn't let our own apologetics or defense of the Bible get in the way of just listening deeply to the Bible's own point of view and what it's actually trying to do. So we always need to let we always need to remember to let the Bible itself show us how it wants to tell the story. And we need to be careful not to try to force the scriptures into modern categories or methods of writing that, um, again, play on that same field as the the historical critics want us to play up, play on. And I think you know it's no good trying to remake the Bible into a modern book that that holds up to these microscopic examinations. Bible is what it is, which is a collection of writings from the ancient Near East. That is fully reflective of the realities of that world, including the the literature and the literary realities of the world. Yeah, thank you, Alex. And um, so I, I w- we want to make sure that we're we're all solidly on board with this idea that the the Bible's writing of history is a form of of storytelling, and that again, as Glenn mentioned, um, storytelling is an art form. And we see this literary craft in in the historical writings of the Bible. But because 
the way many of us have been trained to read the Bible is to, you know, we, we're reading and our antennas are up to find what is the moral truth here, or, you know, what Bible doctrine is being taught here. And that oftentimes interferes with us seeing the, the literary characteristics and these, these clues, these clever clues, which the author authors have, you know, kind of expertly woven into their writings. And so we miss the literary craft. Uh, but a high view of scripture recognizes that the Holy Spirit not only inspired the Bible's authors, but they also inspired different types of literature to get the point across. And so good Bible readers will pay attention to those dynamics of the different forms that God inspired them, and they're each suited to communicating the Bible's content in a unique and appropriate way. And, and I, I want to throw this in, um, and guys, we, you may want to react to it. I don't think this is in the notes, but um, God's primary means, and this, I, this is what I think we're saying, God's primary means of telling us who he is and what he's about is not through propositional statements. It's through these stories. And our tendency is to take our story and um, to reduce it to propositions or bullet points. And, um, you know, this, if you look at almost any church website, at least, um, you know, evangelical churches, there's a section there called what we believe, right? Mm -hmm. Right. And and it's, it's, 15 to 20, or in some cases, 50 <laughs> propositional statements. And I think what happens is that these get interpreted as the final word about who God is and, and what God is about. And so, you know, it's not important to know all this background stuff, you know, because what we believe is really the heart of the matter. And all the stuff in the Old Testament and these long stories of Israel's birth and the evolution you know, into a nation that represents God, that's just all kind of window dressing because the stuff that you really need to know are, are those propositional um, truths. So uh, I, I think I'm done with my rant there, <laughs> but, but, you know, Marshall McLuhan was right. The, the medium is the message. And I don't think we're, we're saying then that the recitation of creeds is, does not have any value, but it is not a substitute for the stories. Mm. And we will not, we will not get to know God in his ways simply through bullet pointed propositional truths. Yeah, it's almost as if we try to tell God, well, I mean, the stories are nice, God, but here's how you really communicate. You just boil it down to these yeah. clear statements or propositions and doctrinal truths stated this way. And that's what we really need. Mm-hmm. And we we thereby diminish stories. Which, as you said, Paul, these were inspired choices of literary genres uh, given to these authors, and they communicate in the way they do that only that kind of literature can do. And that's why there are different kinds of literature in the Bible. So that's a great reminder. Yeah, I think I think sometimes we wish that God had been more bullet pointed, you know, yeah. That there would have been maybe on the Sermon on the Mount somewhere where we would say, okay, let's get down to brass tacks here. Okay, you want to get to heaven? Here's, here's the three things, but he never does it. I mean, there's, he, he says, you know, there was a story about a man who had two sons or, you know, there was a, a, 
a landowner that threw a big banquet and over and over again, these are stories. And I read something the other day of a group of young people like college students that get together and they said, whenever we get together, we always recite the gospel to each other, you know? And I think what they're saying is they recite the death, the resurrection. (laughs) Yeah. You know, the death, the burial, the resurrection and the atonement, uh, the, the atonement. And, and that's that's not a bad thing. But um, these these stories are where God reveals himself and he reveals himself in ways that are not revealed in in simple propositional statements. Yeah, not not to take this too off track here, um, but our previous episode was all about chapters and verses and kind of the modernization of the mm. world, right? And I think that's that's really added fuel to this whole fire to want to right. the bullet points, right? right. I mean, they you, work together. You yep. go on those those church uh, websites and under the beliefs, there are the bullet points, but then there's the parenthetical list of verses that back up those those yeah. bullet points, and so it all kind of reinforces each other. Um, and I think we miss something if that's the only way we ever engage with truth and doctrine and understanding who God is, is through these propositional statements backed up by isolated verses. We, we miss yep. a lot, I would say. Mm-hmm. So uh, getting back to, uh, to what we <laughs> were originally going to talk about here, um, I think the question is, how does this revelation of God's nature through storytelling uh, work out? in practice like what's an actual example of this happening and like every single episode of this podcast this could be an entire college course um which would be really interesting but i think i think today we can just hinge on one example to get us started sort of exploring this idea so we're going to go back to the book of genesis which contains the opening stories of course of of the entire bible it sets the stage for everything that follows throughout the, the entire grand narrative. And the basic literary structure of the book is built on the various accounts of key people and then their family lines that follow. So in Hebrew, this is marked by the word toledot. Right? Yeah, yeah, it works. <laughs> uh, meaning generations or oftentimes in our Bible, our modern Bibles, it's commonly translated. This is the account of such and such or so and so. So today we're going to ta- talk about the the strange story of Judah and Tamar, which occurs later in the book of Genesis. It seems odd in a lot of ways, not least in its depiction of ancient prostitution practices and the place of patriarchy in the Bible. But I think even the story's placement seems weird and kind of random, honestly. So before we jump in, it might be helpful for our listeners to read Genesis chapter 37 and 38 to kind of re-familiarize yourself with this story, or if, if you have a copy of Immersed Beginnings, it's on pages 57 through 61. Okay, so let's set the stage here a little bit. So toward the end of Genesis, there's the end of the cycle of stories. Really, those Toledot sections are cycles of stories about different people. Um, so the stories about Jacob are coming to an end. This is just for those who are keeping score around Genesis 35 or so. So we see God telling Jacob to move his entire household to Bethel, which is the place where God had revealed himself to Jacob when he was running away from his brother Esau earlier in the story. 
Now God comes to Jacob again, reaffirms his choice of Jacob and the promise of both land and descendants, echoing what had happened with Isaac and Abraham. God specifically mentions this time that kings will be born from his family line, and he confirms that Jacob's name is going to be Israel. Soon after this, Jacob's beloved wife Rachel dies while giving birth to Jacob's last of 12 sons, Benjamin. The text notes that Rachel is then buried on the way to Ephrath, which will come later to be called Bethlehem. So, there are all kinds of details in this little intro that are important to the later story. There's a lot of foreshadowing going on here. The Bible's way of conveying historical narratives is itself very sparse and lean. There are no grand and lengthy descriptions of characters and scenes like we're so used to in modern storytelling and history writing. This is why being attentive to what details are there is so important to being a good reader of the Bible. Key words really matter, especially those that get repeated. Also, our common practice of reading shorter biblical stories in isolation from what's around them prevents us from seeing many important things. The bigger narrative context always matters. Okay, so after the closing of the Jacob stories, there's this brief story of Esau's line, just so it can get dismissed, as that's not where this story is going. So that's over. Next up is a longer cycle of stories, but this time it's about Joseph. But just as the Joseph stories are getting started, I mean, we get one kind of story at the beginning. Suddenly we find this strange insertion of the account of Jacob's son Judah and his interaction with his daughter-in-law Tamar, who at one point he takes to be a prostitute. So what is going on? Why is this thrust into the beginning of the Joseph stories? And why is this even matter to the bigger narrative? Seems like a pretty random and even crude story to feel the need to include it here. So let me just briefly summarize um, kind of the beginning of the Joseph story and then what happens in the Judah and Tamar story so that then we can begin to explore what the connection really is and why that story's there. And in the process, learn a little bit about history, storytelling, within the Bible. So at the beginning of the Joseph story, we find out that Joseph is a son of Rachel. She only has two, Joseph and Benjamin. Um, we, we hear that Jacob loves Joseph more than his brothers. And then Joseph starts having these dreams. So he has a dream that which he tells his brother, which of course endears him to them, when he says, we were all out gathering sheaves, and your sheaves bowed down to my sheaf of wheat. Yeah. Right. And then he says, Oh, and I had another dream. So the sun and the moon and 11 stars all bowed down to me. And so Jacob hears about this. He says, Oh, so your mother and I and your 11 brothers are all going to bow down to you. And he's not happy that Joseph, number one, is having these dreams. Number two, probably that he's sharing them and kind of looking like he's going to lord it over his brothers. But it's interesting. Right? We had this promise to Jacob that he would have kings come from his line. And now right away, Joseph is having dreams about people bowing down to him, including his, you know, mostly his, his own family. So it seems like 
the line of kings appears like it's going to be through Joseph because already these dreams reflect kind of a sense of royalty or bowing down to him. So his brothers aren't happy. Joseph is sent by Jacob to go check on them one time and they decide to kill him. Reuben, the oldest son of Jacob, is opposed to this and says, let's just throw him in a cistern and then we can decide what to do with him, but let's not kill him. I mean, he is our own flesh and blood. And so they throw him in an empty cistern. It doesn't have any water in it. And then they're sitting down and eating. They notice some traders heading down to Egypt. And they say, hey, we can sell Joseph into slavery and just get rid of him without killing him because he is, after all, our brother. So they do that. And then, um, you know, Judah comes back. They, you know, he sees what's happened. And it's like, what are we going to tell Jacob? So they had taken his coat, which Jacob had given to him as kind of a special gift, this very richly decorated, ornate coat, and they dip it in the blood of a goat, and they bring it to Jacob and say, here's, here's this coat. And Jacob immediately knows it's the coat that he gave to his son Joseph, um, assumes that he's been torn to pieces by wild animals and is dead. And he's inconsolable. He can't be consoled. And he says, I will spend the rest of my days mourning the loss of my son, Joseph, who in the meantime is taken down to Egypt and sold into slavery for Potiphar. And that's where the story will pick up after the Judah and Tamar story. So then we have this like pretty dramatic beginning. And suddenly we're hearing about Judah. And we're like, wait, what? What does this have to do with anything? And so then we read the Judah story, and he finds himself a wife. He immediately has three sons. So it seems clear that Judah's line is, is not in danger of going forward. So his first two sons, though, die young. So he only has one son left. And so Judah, I mean, given the, the cultural expectations of the time, in order to make sure that his daughter-in-law to his first and eldest son, whose name was, you know, the son was named Er, that his wife was named Tamar. So that's Judah's daughter-in-law. The cultural custom was that his other sons are supposed to sleep with her if he has any other sons so that, so that her family line can continue, which is really the family line that will be attributed to his eldest son, because that's the way this, that's, that's a really important thing in the ancient Near East. So Judah has one son left, um, but he's younger. So he tells Tamar, look, just go home to your father and live in his household as a widow. You know, my son has died. Your husband has died. And when my third son grows up, then I'll have him sleep with you so that your line has a chance of continuing. And then it says um, Judah's wife dies. So he's now a widower. His two oldest sons have died. Then it says, after a long time, right, then Judah goes down and is going to go on this, this journey uh, related to watching uh, for his sheep herds. And Tamar hears about it. And the text note that it's been a long time is really important because it says Tamar realized that Judah had no intention of having his younger son sleep with Tamar. And so she is going to be left as a widow and without even a chance to have any children. And so she takes matters into her own hands. And so she puts on a veil 
sits by the town gate, um, looking like a prostitute and taking off her widow's clothes. And Judah, who is now without his own wife, sees her and says he wants to sleep with her. And so he does, but she has her veil on and he doesn't recognize her. So he says, she says to him, what are you going to pay me? And he says, a young goat. And he says, how do I know that you will? What is your pledge? So she gives him, um, he gives her his, his seal and his cord and his staff. Now, in the ancient world, that's like handing over your major credit cards, right? I mean, you're like, that's how you did business. You, these were the sign of your name and authority, and, and they carried like the weight of your wealth. And so she gets to hold on to those until he pays her with this young goat, which he doesn't have like with him. So he's going to send it to her later. But in the meantime, she gets to hold on to these things, which is a big deal. So then um, she becomes pregnant. He goes on his way. And then three months later, word comes to Judah, your daughter-in-law Tamar is pregnant. And she's unmarried. So Judah, you know, patriarchal society, he says, take her out and burn her. Right. So right, right off the bat, we're like, oh, this is interesting. Judah gets to sleep with the town prostitute. Right. And it's not a big deal. His daughter-in-law gets pregnant seemingly through um, either prostitution or just sleeping around. Right. And he's like, okay, she has to die. So just so we understand the patriarchy of the ancient world and how it worked and the different standards for men and women, that's not the point of this story, but just to see that that's what's going on. and to see the disadvantage that Tamar was under and how she so creatively worked to get her place in the story back. It's a beautiful thing. So she's being taken out to be burned and she still has Judah's seal and cord and staff. So she says to the person, Oh, go take these to Judah and ask him whose these are. Cause it's by the owner of these things that I am pregnant. So that happens. And Judah's like, Oh, I'm busted. And he actually says the words, she is more righteous than I am because she knew that I wasn't going to send my third son to her. And her life was over as being a carrier of the family line, right? And heir, her husband was Judah's firstborn. So he would have inherited the major part of Judah's um, goods and, and would have been the key line to continue the story. So Tamar, through this creative kind of, you know, it's a radical step to dress yourself as a prostitute to sleep with your father-in-law. But the expectation was someone in Judah's family was supposed to do this so that she could have a family. That was the cultural given. So that's what happens in this story. And now we need to explore kind of like, what does this have to do with the Joseph stories and what's the connection? Yeah, that's right, Glenn. And <clears throat> I think there's there's of course the cultural component and the expectation and the pressure to to continue your family line but if we've been reading the book of Genesis in its entirety which of course longtime listeners of our podcast know we always advocate for reading books cover to cover we we already know through the Genesis story how important family lines are to the overall story right like early on in the story God chooses Abraham and his family to be this vital means of bringing blessing back to all peoples and and to the creation itself. 
And that's kind of the the key plot line of the whole thing, which sort of opens up the storyline of, okay, how is this family line going to progress and continue throughout the story? So, you know, which son is it going to be through each generation? Which line of Abraham is going to carry this promise forward? So this this Tamar story kind of takes on this whole new level of meaning to the overall story. Um, and and like you said, we we know that ancient cultures always favored the firstborn son of the family as the most important heir. But we also see that oftentimes God just doesn't really care too much about, <laughs> right? about that. He doesn't. Yeah, like yeah. We, we see over and over again, he makes his own choices. And there's a lot of just strange things that happen throughout the overall Genesis narrative where someone other than the firstborn kind of gets chosen to carry God's work forward. Mm. Yeah, it's a fascinating story and the positioning of it as has been previously mentioned, is is fascinated as well. And, you know, this this is not the kind of story that usually shows up in Sunday school curriculum or, <laughs> yeah. you know, right. va- vacation Bible school, you know, <laughs> curriculum. But even even when it does and when it, it gets preached on, uh, it, the focus is oftentimes kind of moralistic. So like, okay. Here's another example. This is where illicit sex will get you. You want to get your life screwed up, you know, you want confusion, chaos, then then just go ahead. But morality, even though the morality is 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 there and it's important, is it's not typically the main point of the Bible's historical stories. And so the overarching concern is always, you know. What are God's bigger purposes? How are they being moved forward or being undermined? And then how does God respond? So taking this this story, um, the narrator, as we will see, is very subtly woven in ties between Judah and Tamar and the larger narrative in the book of Genesis. So, for example... We see again these two stories of Joseph and Judah in juxtaposition, which is crucial. Mm. Yep. And um, it says in the text that Joseph goes down, he, he leaves his brothers and he goes down to Egypt. In fact, that's repeated twice. And then we also read that Judah, same words, leaves his brother and he goes down. So right away at the start of this. Simple repetition is a hint to us that these stories belong together. And this, again, is a technique uh, in the Bible craft that time passages together by the use of familiar phrases or even sometimes just a single uh, key word. And and we have to learn as good Bible readers to look for these things and develop antennas that we will pick them up. Yeah, and that's the thing I think we're never told. We're we're always told to look, especially as you mentioned, for moralistic meanings, but we're not really taught to pay attention to these kind of details. And I think that's what real Bible reading of historical stories is about, is reading these details and and kind of like you said, Paul, having your antenna up so you're like watching for them. You're tuned into that. Okay, so here we go. Jacob has 12 sons, so there's no question his line is going to go forward. But immediately in this passage, we see that two out of three of Judah's sons have died young. So Judah is trying to protect his last remaining heir, his third son. 
But to do so, he has to deceive Tamar. Judah ties the death of his earlier sons to Tamar. He seems to think that she's got a curse or is bad luck or something. So he's just like written her out of the family. He has no intention of having his son sleep with her so she can have her own son, an heir to Judah's inheritance. So in the immediately preceding Joseph story, we also see Judah participating in the move of dipping Joseph's clothes in blood to deceive Jacob about Joseph's supposed death. So Judah is a deceiver. Of course, Jacob himself was a deceiver when we go back and read his stories, not to mention a second born, yet God had chosen him. Early in this story, Tamar seems like yet another quiet victim of the system of patriarchy that so strongly favors men and their desires and their actions. Tamar has been promised a husband, right? She's been, she's, the cultural expectation is, you know, go home to your father. When my third son grows up, I'll have him, you know, sleep with you and we'll try to get this thing going again. Yet Judah has no intention of giving her his only remaining son. He's been, he also deceived Tamar. So there's deception happening all over the place. But then Judah, the deceiver, is himself deceived, just as Jacob, the deceiver, had himself been deceived. Instead of remaining passive in the face of an overwhelming patriarchy, Tamar becomes a powerful actor, reclaiming her own story. The text brilliantly echoes an echo of the words. It highlights these, this echo that we heard earlier in the opening Joseph story. Joseph's brothers take the blood-dipped coat to Jacob and urge him, examine this road to see whether it is your son's. Kind of a strange thing to say, actually. I mean, everybody knew it was Joseph's coat. Then we read, Jacob recognized it. All of this matches closely the message of Tamar to Judah now in this passage. See if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. And then we read, Judah recognized them. So it's exactly parallel to what happened in the earlier Joseph and Jacob story. Now we see it with Judah and Tamar. In both cases, we have examine and then the word recognize, first to perpetuate a deception, and in Tamar's case, to uncover one. But the parallel usage connects the two passages closely together. Again, details, the details matter. Biblical storytelling is sparse, it's lean. But these things are the things to look for. Yep. And, and it's interesting. And I think if you're a total Bible nerd, it's super interesting. <laughs> but, but I think we need to get to kind of the upshot here. So like, what's, what's the big deal with all of this and, and why does it matter? Okay, you're right. Um, it's, you can't just geek out and leave it at that. Well, it turns out that Tamar got pregnant from Judah, like we mentioned, and like Isaac's wife, Rebecca, before her, she had twin boys. So in one fell swoop, the widowed and childless Tamar is given two heirs to her deceased husband's rightful inheritance of Judah's estate. Judah was worried about losing his third son the way he lost his first two. Family lines, like reading Genesis, you just have to think family lines are the big deal in the book of Genesis. But Tamar took the initiative and got Judah's line back in order. 
And so here's here's how the the story is wrapped, the Judah and Tamar story. Um, And I'm reading from the text when the time came for Tamar to give birth. It was discovered that she was carrying twins and no ultrasound to give any advanced warning. (laughs) That's not in the text. Um, And while she's in labor. One of the babies reached out his hand and the midwife grabbed it and uh, tied a scarlet scarlet string around the child's wrist announcing this one came out first. But then he pulled back his hand (laughs) and out came his brother. What? The midwife midwife exclaimed. How did you break out first? You know, like what kind of gymnastics brought this about? (laughs) Um, and so, um, he was named Perez, um, the one who breaks forth and, and Perez was almost a second born, but he broke out and he, he beat his brother. And so it's just another instance of these strange things happening in, in biblical birth stories, but there's more. And as you're, as we read the larger biblical text, We learn near the end of Genesis in Jacob's final blessings to his 12 sons. He lines them all up and lo and behold, the blessing is not bestowed on Reuben, his firstborn. He keeps going down the line and finally he gets to Judah. And there we are told that the kings are going to come from Judah's line and now carried forth by Tamer's son, Perez. And so the kingly line leading to Israel's final king is passed down through this very scandalous and this very strange family uh, dysfunction. So think about it, you know, as you trace it, Isaac is not Abraham's firstborn, but he receives the patriarchal blessing. Jacob was not Isaac's firstborn, but he gets the blessing. Judah was not Jacob's firstborn. He gets the blessing. And then Perez is more like Judah's grandson, you know, having been born to Judah's daughter-in-law, but he's now next in line. So this story is going to continue through Perez. Nobody saw that coming. And you think about the first readers of this, these Israelites who are so used to these patterns and you know, I'm sure they were gobsmacked by this. You can't nail God down. You can't put mm. him in a box. You cannot, you know, reduce him to a formula. Yeah, that's right. And it it seems to fit with a lot of what we see in Genesis. You know, I I'm obviously uh, not a mom, but I imagine all the moms <laughs> listening to this podcast like that that birth story sounds like a nightmare <laughs> to me, right? Right. Like, and it's just strange, yeah. like the gymnastics that must be going on. I don't know. Um, but, you know, we see this over and over in Genesis where there's just weird stuff. People doing strange things, including, of course, like we mentioned before, a lot of just deception and, and deceiving each other. But quietly and without fanfare, Genesis is confirming that God himself is behind all the workings of this wild kind of ongoing story through Isaac then Jacob then Judah and now Perez. And this is often how the the narrative is. It's it's subtle. It's not super uh, descriptive like some of our modern literature is. It's it's pretty straightforward. I would say it's it's subtle and not flashy. But there's a lot of significant things that that happen through it. So going on, uh, what what ends up happening with the family line of Perez? 
Yeah, it's so fascinating. And I think the reason why the Tamar and, and Perez story is where it is, when when the opening story of Joseph is all about like people bowing down to him and he's going to be royalty, the natural reader reaction would be, okay, so it must be Joseph that the line of kings is going to come from. He's having dreams about royalty. And then the reason the Tamar and Perez story is placed immediately next, it's kind of like a hint to us that don't get too far down the line with with Joseph. Don't jump to conclusions because there's something interesting happening that God is doing through Judah and and Judah's heir. It all comes about in the strangest of ways, but that's actually where this story is going. So we read that the line of uh, Kings is going to come from the royal line. It's going to come through Perez. So we jump to the New Testament. And this is where another thing I think worth saying about historical reading in the Bible it's worth remembering things like when you get to later stories, even much later stories like New Testament compared to First Testament, sometimes these details play a huge role later. So just like we need to be like Bible readers in the ancient world, people who heard these stories again and again, and just lodge them in our brains. And so because things will come up in the strangest of ways. So we jump ahead to the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew opens its story of Jesus by giving us the record of his ancestors. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, okay, sounds familiar. But then this, after Jacob comes Judah, and then yes, Perez, whose mother Tamar is mentioned by name, even though it's completely non-standard in Jewish genealogies to mention women. But Matthew goes out of his way to mention that it's Tamar, who is actually the mother of Perez. And it's just a way to a Jewish audience of saying, oh yeah, remember that story, Tamar and Perez? Well, guess what? God was behind that. Then Perez, born only because of the bold and extremely creative action of his mother, is shown to be the ancestor of some characters named Boaz, and then Jesse, and then King David himself. So even in the shorter term, Perez ends up being crucial to the story, and he almost wasn't born at all if Tamar hadn't taken the initiative. Strange stories everywhere in the Bible, but it all leads to the birth of kings as promised and of God's big intentions of becoming more and more clear as we read more and more of the story. Women are pretending to be prostitutes by the side of the road to trick men into doing the right thing. But God is working through it all to save the whole world. It's rather remarkable. Yeah, and I, I, I don't know where Tamar fits in some of the books that are written about women, but I, you know, I think there's like a book called The Bad Girls of the Bible. Hmm. And uh, no doubt, you know, Tamar, you know, fits, <laughs> fits into this group. But as we've said, that isn't the story. And right. What is the story is that God is at work behind the scenes through the good, the bad and the ugly. And there's plenty of it. You know, David, um, most historians would say now today, you know, raped Bathsheba. He used his power. And ultimately, though, out of that comes Solomon. And through Solomon's line, the family moves on. And then we get uh, 
to the genealogy of Matthew. So again, to your point, Glenn, now we've skipped into another Testament. Mm. But in in the reading of that genealogy, which again, most people read them and say, wow, this is mind-numbingly boring. But we we stumble on another Jacob. And he was the father of another one called Joseph. And so again, if you're a good Bible reading, there's an echo. There's a Jacob. Oh, oh, okay. I remember Jacob. Oh, and guess what? He has another, he has a son named Joseph. And so the sequencing, you know, is, is really critical there. And um, this one, of course, then this Joseph was the husband of Mary who just happened to give birth to the Messiah named Jesus. And so uh, without being preachy, uh, if you listen, I think what we're saying is so important to get thoroughly immersed in these historical narratives. These family lines matter. These unusual births and these many strange non-standard things that are happening. This is God's story, and this is the way God's history um, develops. And it has its own flavor, its own ancient and fascinating ways of letting us know of God's own mysterious history in the world um, with his people and with his with this utterly surprising uh, plan. I have to tell you guys, this, this episode made me think of my mother. Um, she had no formal training. She had seven sons in the midst of the craziness of her life. However, she really immersed herself in the Bible stories. And as I, as I look back on her life and the things that she tried to teach me, she wanted me to have this deep reading of the story and pressed into my heart and mind, the great mystery um, that this story contains of how God works. And I I still remember she taught me um, the lines from a poem and they're actually a hymn by William Cowper. And it's familiar, you know, God works in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps on the sea and rides across the storm. And then this verse, ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings round your head. And so, you know, it's been an interesting three years. People, I think, are reeling. They're discouraged. Hope is dwindling. And we need hope, not just for the life to come, but for this life as well. And I think that comes through the deep reading of these stories that come together to tell God's bigger story. of a God who gets down in the mud and the blood with us, and he enters into our human story that is just riddled with human failure and then makes all things beautiful in his time. All right. Yeah. Thank you, Paul. Yeah. Um, so I, I guess it's time to like, what conclusions can we draw from all this? Right. Um, first of all, I just want to say, I think the Bible's historical narratives are ripe for rediscovery. It's not a place where, where Bible readers are drawn to, I think we may have vague memories of Sunday school lessons, but it's not a place we often read. And it's to our detriment that we don't know these stories. So how are we supposed to read the Bible's historical narratives? I think the lesson here today is that we need to become more careful, attentive, and reflective readers. We need to look again at what happens both before and after the stories we read And we should just take our time. I mean, there's no need to rush through these things. We need to linger. We need to reread, to relax, and just take time to think through what we've read. 
it would be good to set aside our own agendas, right? And not insist that we know in advance what these stories have to be about. They can surprise us if we will just give them their, you know, our fair share of time. Will we catch everything that's going on? Like every echo, every literary repetition? Not likely, but we also read in community and we take that seriously. Others will see things that we don't. Even reading what other Bible readers have to say, like in commentaries and other books on the Bible, it's really a form of reading in community, which is something we have long advocated on this program. A lot of what we shared today came from a Jewish teacher named Robert Alter. We didn't find these things ourselves. We read in community and he taught us. So together, we can find a lot and our understanding of the story will grow. The hope is that then our love for the wondrous workings of God will also grow. Because really, you take the whole thing and the way the pieces of the historical drama across the whole Bible, the way those pieces work together, it's really a remarkable story. Hmm. That's right. And I think, again, just to reiterate, as we touched on earlier, uh, a lot of us today still have sort of this lingering expectation that originated in that modern enlightenment period where we want and we expect the Bible's accounts of history to just be these scene-by-scene transcriptions, kind of just the facts Mm. of history, right? But I think, as we've explored today, God's work through the Bible has a deeper agenda than just just the facts history. And the point is to show how he's always working, always faithful, always taking the broken and really nasty, messed up realities of life in this world and finding ways to work with them so that they end up getting woven into his larger redemptive purposes. So hopefully this podcast has been helpful for our listeners. And of course, a reminder that next time you're reading narrative in the Bible, just try to be on the lookout for repetition and recurring themes and the ripple effects of stories that seem maybe strange and out of place, there's usually something going on there and there's a purpose beyond just uh, my, what might just be uh, immediately evident through the story. So, so keep an eye out for those things, do your best and uh, don't neglect to read the scholars because, because they've mm. done a lot of the work for us too. As always, this episode of the Bible reset is brought to you by change makers, our community of donors who give monthly gifts of any amount to help us create resources that change the way people read the Bible. If you appreciate this podcast and you'd like to support our work, you can learn more at instituteforbiblereading.org slash changemakers. That's going to do it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you on the next one.